Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, 12th chapter of Luke, and this morning we will, God willing, finish Luke chapter 12. We're now about halfway through our study of Luke chapters-wise. We're 69 weeks into our study of Luke, and this morning Jesus brings his extended teaching, both to his disciples and to the crowds, he begins to bring it to a close. In fact, over the last two chapters, um, chapter 11 through chapter 12, with a interruption that sets up the next level of discussion, Jesus has been teaching and rebuking the crowds. If you remember back in chapter 11, um, a controversy began starting in verse 14 when Jesus performed another miracle. He had been casting out demons regularly. He'd been healing the sick regularly. But now, rather than what we are used to in Luke of wonder and awe, glorifying God, a mighty prophet has been raised up in our midst. Now, verse 15, some said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then there's another response, verse 16, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And we begin to see the crowds turning on Jesus. Up to this point in Luke, the crowds have been generally and uniformly praising God, glorifying God, speaking well of Jesus. We saw the Pharisees begin to um, become hostile to Jesus. And so Jesus in 11.29 rebukes the generation. And what we're seeing is the beginning of the end of the nation of Israel in regards to their Messiah. When Jesus is crucified, there are 150 disciples in the upper room. That's it. When Jesus resurrected, appears in his hometown in Galilee, there are 500 to whom he appears to. Thousands upon thousands or millions of Israelites did not receive their Messiah. And so verse 29, this generation, he's now dealing with everybody, is an evil generation, for it seeks a sign. And then Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house for dinner and blasts into him and into the lawyers, the chief charge being that they are hypocrites. And if you remember the the base notion of hypocrisy is to play act. It's the mask on from theater to appear and present yourself to be one thing and inwardly be something else. The Pharisees would appear externally to be the most devout, the most religious, the most God-fearing and faithful people on the face of the planet. Everything from the way they dress to the food they eat to the way they do their hair, everything would appear to be an act of devotion and worship to God. And you know, inwardly, Jesus says they're like dead men's tombs. They are defiled, and they defile others. And then, in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus takes this new escalation, because remember, the Pharisees now are actively hunting Jesus, and Jesus, being 12-1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, now this is the irony literally tens of thousands of people. Jesus' fame and his attraction as a healer, as a miracle worker, has never been higher. So many people that people are getting trampled. And yet, Jesus will this morning rebuke this people and call them hypocrites. 
He warns his disciples in verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And the basic notion of leaven is it's a contaminant. It spreads. A little leaven leavens a whole loaf. And Beware, he's warning his disciples, of learning this trick from the Pharisees, learning the ability to play act, to lead a double life, to appear to be one thing and inwardly be something else. And so he teaches his disciples and he warns them. Because what Jesus is doing in chapter 12, and really this discourse goes all the way through chapter 13, verse 5, is insisting, drawing his teaching to a head, telling the thousands upon thousands in the crowd, you have got to choose a side. You've got to pick a team. So Jesus can say in chapter 12 that whoever does not confess him before men, he will not confess before the angels of God. Earlier in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. You see how there's no neutral zone. There's no demilitarized zone. As the escalation and the conflict comes to a a head with the Pharisees, Jesus is making it clear you have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. As he's teaching his disciples, someone from the crowd asks about money, and Jesus uses that to spring into a second warning. The cares and concerns of the world, holding on to possessions, prizing and treasuring them more than Christ and his kingdom. And verse 34, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And then Jesus starts rounding the corner. He's given exhortation and instruction. Now he warns about the need to be ready. And we saw the example of the three servants, the three slaves, the first who were found faithful, waiting for the master. When he returned, they opened the door to him and they are honored and blessed in return. The second, the, 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 the household manager who, if he knew the hour of the thief were coming, he would have been awake. He would have been prepared. This is a negative example, the danger of being unprepared. And then we saw the four different outcomes of the four different slaves who the master returns. The one is found faithful. Verse 42, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of their food at the proper time? Some, when the Lord returns, he will find doing what they've been commissioned to do. It doesn't matter what God's commissioned you to do. He's given us different works, different ministries, different responsibilities. What matters is you're doing it. You're being faithful. There's a blessing. Verse 43, blessed is that servant. In contrast, there's another servant who's rebellious, who takes the Lord's patience as an excuse to indulge himself, the food he was supposed to give to others. He eats and is drunk with. He deals harshly with the servants, and he is dismembered, cut into pieces. Then there's the servant who simply knew what his master wanted him to do, but just never got around to doing it, right? Well, I've got work I know God wants me to do, but I'll I'll get to it someday. Right now, I've got to focus on this. And he is beaten severely. He doesn't receive a blessing. In our vernacular, he doesn't go to heaven. And then we saw the servant who didn't know his master's will and didn't do it. And he, too, receives a beating because there is no ultimate excuse. And Jesus closes that section. Everyone to whom much is given, of much of him much will be required. And then last week, 
And the reason I'm emphasizing this is this is coming to a close. You need to see where we've gone because Jesus will be tying threads together. Jesus now, balancing off of this notion of his second coming, of, of what will happen when he returns, it's as though his heart is overflowing with desire, passion. He announces he came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And we saw how the Lord in his first coming makes way and prepares for his second coming. And, and Jesus will pour out vengeance and judgment on his enemies when he comes again. And he will do so gladly, with joy, not with a tear in his eye, not saying, don't make me do it, but delighting in justice being done, delighting in the vindication of his glory, delighting in the relief of his saints. And then Jesus warns about the ongoing division, even in households, it will happen. You've, you've got to pick a side. And based on the sides you pick, it will put you at odds with other people. From now on, verse 52, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So again, this pick a side... The time is short, the stakes are high, the sun will return in judgment. And that sets up now Jesus turning his attention to the crowds. And he brings us to a close, rebuking them and still appealing to them to change their allegiance, to, to put their allegiance and faith in him. In fact, this morning's message is titled, Settle Your Account with God. Settle your account with God while you can. Let's begin by reading our text. We'll go from verse 40, 54 through 59. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Two points here, two, two pictures, two parables, if you will, or illustrations that Jesus uses to, to urge this wicked generation. Remember, they're a wicked generation, they're an evil generation, they're a hypocritical generation to repent, to cast their lot with Jesus, to put their faith in him, to, to join his side, his team, to cast their loyalty with him and be saved and flee the wrath to come. The first in verses 54 to 56 is a call to interpret the present time. Interpret the present time. And Luke begins by indicating again now who Jesus is talking to. And this is important because Jesus has been going back and forth. In fact, if you go back to 12.1, you'll see it began with Jesus doing something he has 
regularly done, he teaches his disciples, and the disciples are those who are called learners. Mathetas, it doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. The disciples are a mixed group, but they are those who for now would identify Jesus as their teacher and themselves as his students. They're not sitting on the fence. They've made some commitment to Jesus. They recognize at some level he's someone to learn from. They are his students. But he's teaching these disciples, at least 72, probably more, in the presence of the crowds. So what he's teaching is meant to, to overlap. And we get this because a guy from the crowd interrupts and asks a question. So he's publicly teaching his disciples. So he's first and foremost speaking to them, but there is an implication and understanding that the crowds are meant to hear this. And then in verse 13, we see that interruption. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, so now Jesus starts speaking to this man in the crowd. He's no longer teaching the disciples. The disciples are still present. He starts addressing the crowd. And, and so who Jesus is actually speaking to becomes a matter that confuses even Peter. Look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? <laughs> I know you started talking to us, but somewhere along the line, you started talking to that guy in the crowd. Who's this for? And so Luke wants to make it clear now that this rebuke that Jesus brings is not directed at his disciples, but to the crowds. The crowds that in chapter 11 he called evil for seeking a sign, and in this week he will call hypocrites. The very thing he's warning them not to learn from, not to imitate from the Pharisees has already contaminated them. And so Jesus rebukes the crowds. That's the first point. Jesus rebukes the crowds. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And so the rebuke begins with an analogy, an example, that they know how to interpret the weather. Now, in Israel, they didn't have um, you know, those, those helpful radar charts that we have on our iPhones. They didn't have very sophisticated weather-predicting um, apparatus. But what they did have was generally true. And Israel, as you know, is situated next to the Mediterranean Sea. And so when a cloud filled with moisture from the Mediterranean Sea comes from the west, you can be pretty sure it's going to rain. Likewise, to the south and to the west is a desert. And when the wind comes from that direction, you know that as the day heats up and the, the heat of the desert heats up the wind, it's going to be a really hot day. I mean, this is pretty commonsensical, straightforward. And so Jews of Jesus' day, based on the wind, where it's coming from, might know how to dress, might know what to plan for the day, whether to plan for rain, to plan for heat. They're alert, they're observant. But the key point is this, they know how to make deductions, they know how to make conclusions, they know how to add two and two and equal four. Well, why, why does he point this out to them? Because, point C, they pretend not to know how to interpret the present time. They pretend not to know how to interpret the present time. This really goes back to the rebuke in chapter 11 in verses 15 and 16 where we see the crowds resisting, coming up with reasons and excuses not to embrace Jesus. The first line of reasoning is, sure, 
It's undeniable this man does miracles, but perhaps he does them not by God's power, but by Satan's power. It's ridiculous. It's nonsense. And Jesus will deconstruct it, pointing out to them the number of fallacies involved in that. That was one. That was one excuse people could use to not receive, believe in, and trust Jesus. The other is just a group of people who they're impressed, no doubt, but we, we need to see a little more. We need to see a little more. We need another, do another sign, Jesus, and then maybe you'll convince us. And Jesus makes it clear to this group that he's done proving who he is. He, he has sufficiently proven it. We saw that in the reference in verse 20 of chapter 11, to the finger of God, which is a quote from Pharaoh's magicians who were silenced by the miracles Moses did. And they were able to keep up with Moses for a little bit, but eventually they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is God at work. We can't compete with this. And the the concept is this. Jesus' miracles, he is saying, are so clear and so understandable that you know, you know by what power Jesus is working. They know who he is. They're decision to to accuse him of being satanically powered is done willfully, knowingly. It's not an honest mistake. They see who he is. They see what he's presented. They don't want to accept that conclusion. When we do that, right, we come up with justifications, excuses. And the excuse they come up with, because we don't want to repent, we don't want to trust in him, we don't want to receive him, we don't want to accept his diagnosis of our problem, is, well, we'll just say that he's empowered by Satan. And another group, again, seeing perfectly well the finger of God, said, well, we'll just say we're not sold yet. We'll just say we need some more signs. So in verse 29 of chapter 11, the crowds were increasing. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it. Well, Jesus has already done signs. If you remember back when John the Baptist, imprisoned, sent his disciples to Jesus because he was confused, this wasn't playing out the way he expected, Jesus points to his signs. Tell them what you see, the lame leap, the blind see. So there's a very valid sense in which Jesus' miracles confirm who he is. There's a very right sense in which seeing them and expecting them because the scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would do these things was right. This rebuke is because he's done enough. He's gone from village to village healing everybody who came to him. He has done remarkable miracles. He has twice raised people from the dead. He He turned a funeral into a celebration. Remember the widow's son? He's healed leprosy. He's, he's commanded the winds. He's given his power to his disciples, multiplying his ministry. No. no the, the, for these undecided Jews, their, their failure to receive Jesus is not due to an honest mistake. That's what the rebuke here is about. They are pretending not to know who he is and how to interpret the present times. That's where the charge of hypocrisy comes in. They say, we need to see more, we need to see more. They've seen plenty. So he says to them, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Just as obvious 
and certain it is when you see the clouds coming from the Mediterranean to know, oh, hey, it's going to rain. Jesus is saying the evidence he has given, the proofs he has given are just as obvious, if not more so. That's the nature of the rebuke. The rebuke only works if Jesus is saying this is like this. You can do the one thing, why can't you do the other? He is not saying you can add, why can't you do calculus? He's saying if you can figure out hey, it's going to rain, or hey, it's going to be a hot day, then if you have that much sense, then you are guilty and responsible for interpreting Jesus. Get the level of proof God has furnished. He says it's just as obvious, just as certain, just as clear. You don't have to be a rabbinic expert to get who Jesus is. And therefore, they're guilty of hypocrisy because they're pretending they can't figure out, who is this man? Well, do some more signs and miracles, Jesus. Then maybe, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Maybe he's satanic, who knows? It's hypocrisy. They're pretending to not understand. They're pretending to be undecided when really all along they don't want to follow and serve him. They don't want to bow down to him and they've just got some good excuses. And that's the nature of the rebuke. Point one, they are hypocrites for they know. They are hypocrites for they know. And think in light of that, of the rebuke at the end of the, the story of the four servants, right? What is judgment going to be in relationship to? Look at verse 47. The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. From him whom they entrusted much, will they demand the more. So Jesus has established that judgment and wrath will be according to knowledge. What you knew. How much truth was given to you. How much light was shed upon you. And Jesus is saying, if you're th- counting on appealing to ignorance when you stand before God, God, we just we couldn't make up our minds It wasn't clear to us who Jesus was. We went out to see him. No, they're hypocrites. It's just a play act. So what what age, what present time are they living in? So the rebuke, you're hypocrites. Why? You can do the math with the weather. Therefore, you're guilty. And we all perfectly well know you can do the math with me. If you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? What is the present time of which he speaks? That they are living, and here's a blank, in the messianic age. And by messianic age, all I mean, it's not a biblical term, is the times of the Messiah. Israel had been in the constant expectation for God to send his Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. You remember when John the Baptist began his ministry, they sent people to him, are you the Messiah? For over 400 years, they've been waiting in expectation, waiting, looking for him. And now he is here. This is the age and the time of the Messiah. Consequently, this is the the next step of God's program. And as Jesus has already indicated, the next step after that is judgment. So they're living in the greatest time, the time of the Messiah, the Messianic age, But they're also living in some respects in the most dangerous time because what follows that is judgment. He will come again and cast fire on the earth. And these people 
are acting like they have all the time in the world. They're acting like they're the judges. They get to demand how much evidence they are to receive. They don't understand the age you're living. In fact, turn, turn to Luke 19. No, don't turn. We'll get to Luke 19. Go back to 3. Go back to 3. Sorry. We'll work our way there. Because Luke has already shown us just how much has been given. What, what time are they in? Well, let's begin with John the Baptist's testimony. Verse 3, And John, he went into the regions all around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley should be filled, every mountain and hill should be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level, that all flesh may see the salvation of God. So John the Baptist identifies himself as the herald, the advanced team. He's almost here, get ready. Smooth out the roads, fill in the potholes. The king is almost here. God's salvation is almost here. The Lord is almost here. So what age, what time are they living in? They're living in the time where it's not he's almost here, but he's here. He's walking among them. God in flesh, incarnate. God's salvation is here. God's Savior is here. Go ahead a little further um, in chapter 3 to, to 15 and 17 as John speaks some of what Jesus will do. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, you see these are people looking for the Christ. It's not as though they got distracted. This is what they're looking for. They're looking for the Christ, then the Christ shows up, and they are hypocritically pretending they can't figure it out. We're not really sure. Could you show some more ID, please? Do you have the original long-form birth certificate? Like That's what they're doing. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, worthy, uh, coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Some will be immersed, given the Spirit, and the rest of the world will be burned. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat from his, into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here's the one who will gather the people of faith, and here's the one who will burn and destroy the rest. That's the age they're living in. Then go to chapter 4. Jesus proclaims who he is. Jesus announces who he is. What age are they living in? Verse 16, he's in his hometown. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And there's a pause there. Anointed is the Hebrew Messiah. Messiah simply means the anointed one. So this passage identifies the person who is speaking as the Messiah, the anointed. It's not as clear in your English, but it's plain in the, in the Hebrew, in the Greek, to proclaim, and then the word for good news, that's the word we get the gospel from, euangelion. I am the Messiah, he's saying, sent to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So three times this Messiah is commissioned to preach. And yet also at the end of verse 18, not only to announce this freedom, but to accomplish it, not just to announce, but to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus reads that, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat back down. The eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, that's me. Not only that's me, I'm doing that very thing right now. Remarkable. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's here. It's here. Of course, remember the Jubilee was the time when debts were forgiven. And Jesus has come to announce, you, you can have your debts forgiven. You, you can have your debts wiped out, erased. You can be as white as snow. I'm doing that. I'm the Lord's Messiah. You've been looking for me. Here I am. That's the present time they're living in. But they stumble over the same thing his hometown stumbled over. What, what did his hometown stumble over? That in order for them to receive this pardon, in order for them to receive this forgiveness, they had to be willing to identify themselves as the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. They weren't ready to do that. They had too much self-esteem for that. They were the good guys. They'd been holding the fort. They'd been faithful. And they were expecting when God's Messiah would come, he'd pat them on the back. Good guys, good job, guys. I'll take it from here and go whoop up on the Romans. They were not expecting Messiah to come and say, look, you have as much right and privilege before God as a pagan leper like Naaman. You, you're at the same ground as, this, as the widow who Elijah went to. You are the poor of spirit. You are those held captive by sin. You are those who are blinded by unbelief, and you are those who are oppressed. And I'll set you free, and I'll pardon you, and I'll forgive you, and I'll wipe out the debts and, and, and reset the score. And they tried to throw him over a cliff. They were so enraged when they understood what he was saying to them. And that's the age they're living in. And as we work through this second long section of Luke, remember starting in chapter 9 when he set his face to Jerusalem, the largest section, the journey narrative, it comes to a conclusion in Luke 19. Just, just turn there. I know this is sort of a long aside, but th this is the time that they're not interpreting. This is the epoch, the critical time that they were willfully ignorant of. Verse 41. This is the end. This is where the second section of Luke ends. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
That's, that's the time that these people are willfully ignorant of understanding. God had visited them, Emmanuel, God with us. God had visited them with an announcement of pardon, an announcement of jubilee, forgiveness. All you have to do is accept the diagnosis, recognize. It's coming and saying, you guys are way, 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 way worse than you think, but it's okay. I, you can be forgiven. And they wouldn't hear it. And consequently, there's a judgment. Don't miss that. Verse 42 at the end. Now they are hidden from your eyes. There's an offer of peace. There's a time of visitation. And they, through all sorts of excuses, just couldn't seem to get enough proof, couldn't seem to find enough data, are almost there. I'm still making up my mind. They're hypocrites. Which brings to the conclusion, point three, they are willfully ignorant. They are willfully ignorant. And in, and in 1942, when Jesus says, therefore, therefore, um, they'll be blinded. They're now hidden from your eyes. That links all the way back to chapter 8. Remember when, when Jesus began the parables and he talked about the judgment of God on people who are willfully ignorant, how God would finish that deal for them. He would blind them and he would deafen them and how Jesus was doing that. That's what's going on here. The notion is you put your, you cover your eyes long enough. And maybe they won't open when you take your hands away. Put your fingers in here long enough. Maybe, maybe you won't be able to hear when you take them out. And here's a people in danger of that. By the time we get to chapter 19, the judgment is done. It's too late. They have chosen their team. They will suffer the devastation of the assault and destruction of Jerusalem by Titus the destruction of the temple, the dispersion of the people, and ultimately, if they do not repent, they will face the hellfire of God when the sun returns and pours out fire on this earth. All because they are pretending not to know how to understand what's going on. And that is a perennial problem for people. There's many today who are still making up their mind on what to think of the gospel and God's word. There are many today who have all sorts of good excuses why they don't believe. Understand that when, when you and I stand before God, there will be no such excuses. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says they are without excuse because they know God exists. They are without excuse because they know judgment is coming. They are without excuse for their own consciences, accuse and excuse them. God has given us information to know. The heavens declaring his glory, our own consciences telling us about righteousness and sin, our own judging of others, indicating that we know judgment is coming. And so Jesus is rebuking this feigned making up your mind. I remember vividly, I was a new believer meeting with um, Pastor Barry at South Baptist Church in New Hampshire with an unbelieving friend of mine. I was, I was in a rock band. He was one of the guys in the band with me. And um, we'd been meeting a bunch of times, and he was coming with, with more questions and more objections. His name was Dave. And in a moment of either inspiration or he took a guess or something, it, it paid off. So I don't know whether it was intuition or the prompting of the Spirit or he just got lucky, but Barry just looks at Dave and he says, but Dave, you know it's true. And he just sort of sputtered out. <clears throat> and for the rest of that day and the next day, Dave was just shell-shocked. He, got, he called me out. He called me out. And he was right. 
And my friend Dave knew what was true. And he was making all sorts of excuses to give him a credibility, plausible deniability, I think is the modern term. And the sad, sad fact of the matter is my friend Dave basically concluded, you know what, I think I'll become a Christian, but another year or two, I want to party and drink some more. I don't know anyone more hardened to the gospel now than my friend Dave. Because if you willfully will not see, the Lord may well harden you into that position. Sort of like the old saying, you know, you make that face long enough, it'll stick, that type of thing. No, that's exactly what God's saying. And you go back and listen to God's sovereign purpose in parables, that message about how if you worship something, you will eventually resemble what you revere. You'll become what you behold. You'll be fashioned in the likeness of what you worship. And if you worship idols that don't see, don't hear, and don't talk, you will become one who cannot see and cannot hear spiritually. So, Jesus now, even though he gives them this rebuke, there's still hope. And he calls on them to respond. The linking thought here is this. They, they, they ought to be able to interpret the time. If they, if they won't do that, maybe they can at least bring a judgment about what is right to do now. So why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way? Lest he drag you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer, the officer put you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So the second point, and we'll do this quickly, settle your account with God. Settle your account with God. You see, they are taking their time, but history is moving right along. And so the picture, the analogy is pretty simple, is you're being sued, you're being taken to court, someone has charges against you, and you've got two options. You can wait and have your day in court and see if the judge vindicates you, or you can settle out of court. People do that plenty of times now. We hear about so-and-so settling out of court with a settlement. And what Jesus is saying here is you are, I are, I am, you are and I am. We all are heading towards judgment. Jesus has already thrown that up, this fire that is coming. The master who will evaluate his servants. We're heading towards judgment. And Jesus exhorts the crowd then to think carefully, to think carefully about that. Think for yourselves, the Greek. not, Not on my behalf, but for your sake. Think this one through. Judge what is right. You're heading to judgment. And it's a really simple point. How much better is it to resolve the conflict before you meet the judge? If you can settle out of court, if you can come to terms with the one to whom you owe and are indebted, your accuser, do that now, not in the courtroom. Why? Because in the courtroom, there's no mercy. That's why. There's mercy now. That's the time we're living in now. So, that's the point. Seek God's forgiveness while you still can. Seek God's forgiveness while you still can. You remember just last couple weeks ago, the rich man who didn't realize that very night, you have to give an account to God. Most people don't plan on dying. It just happens. And not one of us is a guarantee of another hour, another breath, another minute, We stand before God. And Jesus urges them to consider and then to make an effort, prioritize, to settle 
with him on the way. And I think of the metaphor, I don't want to press the metaphor out too far. Jesus is the one who you can settle with. Jesus is the one who's offering forgiveness. You are indebted. We are all indebted by sin to God. We've all sinned against him. We've incurred his wrath. We justly deserve a fire that is coming. And yet here, as we move all of us inexorably on our way to that courtroom, According to Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. We're all on our way to that judgment. And on the way to that judgment, we can settle the account. We can find forgiveness. How is that done? Jesus has repeatedly told us the basis in Luke's gospel on how we may be forgiven. You remember the, the man who was lowered down to the roof? Jesus saw their faith and said, man, your sins are forgiven. Or the woman who came in and wept at his feet, and Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Or in the parable of the sower in 8.12, the devil comes, takes away the seed from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Luke 8.48, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. How do you settle? You, you recognize and you accept God's diagnosis of you and me, that we are blind, we are poor, we are needy, we are held captive by sin, we are not good people who sometimes do bad things, but deep down in our core, in our hearts, we are wicked people who want to do what we want to do because we want to do it and we don't like being told otherwise. Own that. Accept that. And you can be forgiven. You, you, can, you can have that debt wiped clean. How? By turning and trusting in Jesus. By, by turning from your sin, by turning to him, by reaching out in faith, trusting in him to be the one who will pay your debt, satisfy God's wrath. That's why Jesus dies on the cross. To satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. He's raised again on the third day, vindicating his claims of who he was. Make peace with God while there's time. Because first, point C, you cannot avoid standing before the judge. No one can avoid this courtroom. No one can avoid being, this is a subpoena you have to answer. You can't go on the lamb. God's got an extradition treaty with every atom in the universe. You'll, you'll make it to court. He'll bring you in. You cannot avoid standing before the judge. And here's the, the final point in verse 59. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. See, here's the remarkable thing. And this gets back to understanding the time, the present time. In God's courtroom, on that day, there will be no mercy. There will be no grace. There will be no patience, no temperament. There will be nothing but pure, perfect, full, and immediate justice. The present time is the time of forgiveness. The present time is the time of pardon. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. In a favorable time I have listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so God's word for you and for me here today is this. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're making up your mind of what to think of Jesus 
Or maybe you're like the servant who knows his master's will and just, I'll get around to doing that later. Give me two more years to do my own thing. And the warning is, you don't understand the time and you don't understand the threat. Make peace with God. He's offering it. He's offering peace. He's offering reconciliation. In fact, this meal that we're about to eat pictures that. Christ gave his body up for us And he suffered on the cross instead of us suffering. We are pardoned because of that. By his stripes are we healed. His shed blood is the basis for our forgiveness. That's what this meal of communion pictures that we're about to take. So I just want to pray as we close the message and prepare for the time of communion and encourage you to do business with God. Settle with your accuser even now. You you can settle your account now. But if you wait until then, you will not be able to. Let's pray. Lord God, protect us from neglecting so great a salvation. Free pardon. Forgiveness. Adoption as sons. Life and sight and liberty and freedom. And we will inherit your kingdom Oh, Lord, let us not neglect such blessings. Let us not come up with plausible excuses, why not, to commit ourselves to Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not settled their account with you, who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I just pray that even now they would settle with their accuser before you drag them into your court's room and give them a just sentence. Lord God, help us now as we prepare to celebrate your table, to do it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen. Call the ushers forward as we prepare.